This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Is there such a thing as free speech? And if so, must we protect it at all costs? Today I will be joined by Stanley Fish, a professor of law at Yeshiva's University, Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. He also teaches at Florida International University, and was previously a dean at the University of Illinois at Chicago and has taught at many other institutions. He's an expert in the area and the author of many books, including The Trouble with Principle, How to Write a Sentence, and There's No Such Thing as Free Speech, and It's a Good Thing, too. His most recent book is titled The First and is forthcoming. Thank you and welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited and pleased to have Stanley Fish here today speaking with me. So Stanley, you've written about at last count 17 books with one coming out on all sorts of issues from Milton to academic politics and speech and campus controversies. And I have to say that I read your book, There's No Such Thing as Free Speech, and it's a good thing too, I think in 1991, maybe, and it really shaped my thinking because I thought it was a powerful argument to think about what speech really means, how to think about free speech in a creative way and not just use it as a slogan. So thanks for joining me, and I'd love to hear your take on what's happened over the last few years. You've been engaged in this issue for so long. Why do we see or what are we seeing with these speech issues, both on campus and the general culture? And I know you're, you're coming out with a new book on this topic, so I would be curious to, to get your sense of why this issue has become such a flashpoint in our current politics and cultural debates. Well, any answer I give to that question will, of course, be partial, but I would highlight the role of the Internet in the last 20 to 25 years, so that now people speaking, that is putting out their opinions uh, for the world to consider, is an activity that occurs billions of times a day in front of vast audiences. Uh, and there are no gatekeepers or filters or monitors which are ensuring that the speech that the public is being asked to consider has been vetted or assessed in some way. And so what that means is that people are easily confused as to what is reliable and what is not, and also become extremely indignant when something is said and try to respond 
in some way and to seek legal remedies. So that a set of processes around speech, which used to be relatively limited to institutional and public context, has now exploded. And I think that's part uh, of the explanation for the proliferation of free speech controversies these days. Do you view this as a qualitative or merely quantitative shift? Is this the invention of the printing press? Did something like this a few hundred years ago? Or is this something so different that we don't quite know how to make sense of it yet? Well, I think it's true that the invention of any vice which democratizes knowledge upsets old traditional structures of discipline, assessment, and at least implicit cultural censorship. So that was true of, uh, of the printing press. It was true to a certain extent of things like the telephone or the telegraph. I'm old enough to remember when the end of the world was supposed to occur because of the invention of television. Right. The prediction, prediction was that in a few years, no one would be able to have a thought any longer, and everyone would be just sitting glued to a TV set. Now, of course, people are said to be glued to their smartphones and other devices. So there's a sense in which these are very old laments and concerns. But I do think that there's something about the Internet and the extraordinarily kickstart it provides that has produced a different landscape. And it's, it's also, you can say, there used to be still some boundaries, geographic, national, etc., even when the printing press or television, now we have a broader, there's a not a seamless global coverage because of the internet and digital media, because many countries try to opt out. And I want to go back to something you said, it democratizes knowledge. When I hear that, wouldn't I think, well, that's a good thing. Democratizing knowledge, it's out of the hands of elites, gatekeepers who only published and wanted us to think about what they felt was important. Yes, well, I have a less benign view of the democratization of knowledge. And this ties in with the pieces I've been writing in recent years on the Academy uh, on academic freedom and what goes on in the classroom. There is a, a movement, it's again not a new movement, it's always been, uh, there's always been a movement of insurgencies, insurgents who wish to disrupt or discard the traditional roots of knowledge and call into question the standards of expertise that have been put in place by, of course, fallible um, human beings. Right. And so one can look sympathetically on this desire not to allow public knowledge to be congealed because of the stifling authority of experts. Right. But I also feel strongly that the authority of experts, even when it's being challenged, is important. And maintaining it in place is crucial unless you want to produce, and some people do want to produce, a democratic free-for-all right. where, as I put it, the words of a teenager with a podcast sitting in his parents' basement in Idaho are taken by many as being more reliable than the words of the news anchor of a major network. Right. 
Now, I'm, when, when I say that, I don't, I'm not in any way suggesting that the news anchor of a major network is wholly reliable. Uh, it's just that he or she is in the position of trying to be reliable. That's part of what the institution promises and offers. So you're making a distinction between knowledge, let's say the accumulated known facts that we have, and the production of knowledge or the mechanisms by which it is produced. And there are people who are challenging one and saying, we don't know the right things yet, we need to add something. And then there are people who are saying the way in which we construct knowledge, kind of what Chomsky says about the media or what Foucault says about production of knowledge, is inherently structured to exclude certain things that people are now trying to also recall. Yes, of course, that is true. That thesis by Chomsky or uh, Foucault, by feminists who talked about and still do talk about consciousness raising, all of the, the, the fact, and Derrida in a great essay called The Force of Law, all speak of the way in which any structure of knowledge power to use the Foucauldian phrase, is always going to be inclusive in some respects and exclusive in other respects. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we must always be pushing forward or pushing, it's a bad metaphor, but I'll use it, pushing the envelope so that people and groups that had hitherto been excluded can now be included. And in general, of course, I would agree that that's a very good thing. But when it translates into a wholesale and automatic distrust of anything that has been said by someone with a PhD, I get a bit nervous. Right. So it's what we're seeing is what you described as democratization. It's also the massification or now the kind of unregulated yeah. Yeah. masses. Yeah, it's kind of an epistemological populism. Right. And you're concerned with it. And what's interesting that what then emerges is this debate around speech and what's good about it, what its value is in a democratic society and whether we ought to just stand up and defend it all the time. And these these conflicts are now, as you've sort of laid out in a lot of you know things you've written in the last couple of years, there's sort of these several positions that actually get speech kind of wrong. Yeah, I think, well... That, that, that's a large question that you've asked. First of all, I think that the idea of free speech, and this is something that I said way back in that book that you referred to, the idea of free speech as the default norm category, which is then chipped away by exceptions, has got it backwards. Exceptions or constraints on speech are built into every socially organized situation in which human beings participate so that there are very few if any contexts in which you can freely say whatever you like and someone else can then freely say whatever he or she likes the only context that comes ready to mind is the Hyde Park corner right. or some equivalent where you get up on a soapbox and say what you like and then someone else succeeds you and says what he or she likes and no one is going to take any kind of action on the basis of what anyone has said. People come to those Hyde Park corners to be amused, or they fall asleep, or they pay no attention. That can hardly be the default condition of speech production and consumption, because in most contexts of speech production and consumption, something is at stake for everyone who is involved, and that's something which is at stake 
already sets up parameters of speech that will be welcome, speech that will be thought to be irrelevant, speech that no one thinks should be uttered in this particular occasion. And that's the ordinary situation where constraints and exceptions are already built in to the scene of communication. When you said people get it backwards, they think there's all this free speech and then these exclusions are these rare exceptions we have to make right. for ex especially right. grievous circumstances, right, fighting right, words, right. all sorts of things. And you're saying that's actually the wrong approach because that presupposes right. that speech has no meaning actually, because that's meaning right. could and, be... Yeah, in the context that I spoke of, the Hyde Park Corner, or any other equivalent context, speech uh, is more or less the equivalent of noise. People are just opening up their mouths and saying something, and then other people open up their mouths and say something else. And unless you believe, as some people happen to do, in fact, that the production of noise is something that we should protect, it's very odd to find free speech regarded as a default or ordinary situation. As I've already said, and you've said too, free speech in the popular imaginations sense is a, a situation that almost never exists. Right. And when you think about some of the controversies that you're writing about now, that when people hear the word free speech now, they think, I think, reflexively, immediately about controversial, offensive sort of what people term either difficult or bordering all the way on hate speech. Sort of, It's interesting yes. that they don't think free speech is to protect constructive contributions to a democracy, you know, open-minded, you know, great proposals. <laughs> but rather when free speech is evoked, they say, well, we must protect the worst in, in human utterance. Yes, well, it depends, again, whether or not you think that the production of words is itself somehow beneficial or sacred. And usually those two go together in strong free speech polemics. So whether you think that speech, like any other activity, has to be assessed and judged in terms of the good or bad that it does, and then you act accordingly. And part of the action that you might take could possibly involve laws regulating speech. We should not be, I think, beguiled by the speech-action distinction, without which, of course, the First Amendment wouldn't even get started. But I think there's, there have been demonstrations from all kinds of sources, philosophical, sociological, historical, that the speech-action distinction doesn't hold up, and that words, or almost all words, have effects. Some of those effects, like the effects of other actions, are benign, and some are malign. And I think that it doesn't make sense to assume that all speech should be given a blanket immunity from regulation just because it's speech. Interesting. So you're saying that inherent to speech in, as you think, philosophical, sociological, other understandings, it has a dimension that could be termed action without having to go to performative theories or sort of making this extreme case that all words are like actions. You're saying it has this dimension inherent to it, and the legal approach wants to kind of separate that out. Yeah, and the legal approach has to separate this out. I'm in the position of both criticizing the speech-action distinction as a philosophical construct. I don't think it holds up, but nevertheless saying that it's necessary to maintain it if we're going to have something like 
a First Amendment regime where we're trying to mark out places where speech is more or less constrained. That's only going to work as a project if speech action distinction is maintained, even though, as I often say, it could not be defended down to the ground. But I guess one might say that my position is more in the direction of pragmatism or some version of pragmatism, where I'm saying, yeah, we should distinguish speech from action, even though finally we can't distinguish speech from action. Because if we do, in fact, distinguish speech from action, there are certain kinds of jobs or effects that we want to produce, which will be therefore easier to produce. Just don't attach all of this activity to some high-flown theory that puts at its center some grand universal free speech principle. I don't think there's any grand universal free speech principle. Interesting. And what you're saying is that the debates around especially hate speech or offensive speech often center on this distinction where on the one side people are painted into this corner saying you equating words too quickly and easily with action and we are on the side where we think they're only words which just happens to be the title of one of Catherine McKinnon's books. Right. Or Jeremy Waldron, who has this concept of injurious speech. That Can you say something about why this debate then, why people can't hold what you're doing, two points of view, and say there's a philosophical, it's not probably going to get us to the ground level, but for pragmatic reasons, we have to actually operate with this assumption for the moment. Well, I would say that the pragmatic view of the production and consumption of speech is not one that you hear very often. For historical reasons, this debate has been polemicized so that you're thought to be either on one side or the other. Either you're taking a McKinnon-like position where words are in fact actions and should be subject to the same kind of regulation as action, or you're taking a deontological or principled aversion, like Ed Baker and other First Amendment theorists who say things like, what part of Congress shall uh, shall not abridge freedom of expression, don't you understand? The people who say that will take the idea of no abridgment of freedom of expression very seriously and will in effect say that this principle must be adhered to and let the consequential chips fall where they may, as opposed to trying to begin with some sense of the consequences that might result from whatever position that you take on free speech and then act accordingly. Now that's traditionally called balancing. Do you think the people who are sort of taking these two sides, sort of saying either speech is action or saying this deontological way that speech is not action, is it, are they getting reality wrong? Is there an error on either side to say they're viewing reality in the wrong way? They don't know what's going on. I have the right philosophical approach here. I live in the world and I experience it. Well, I don't know. I'm not even sure I understand the question of they're getting reality wrong. If, if someone says to me that there's an entity called speech which can be sharply demarcated from what we think of as action, I think that's wrong. If someone says to me, if that's wrong, let's just get rid of the whole machinery of the First Amendment and other ways of organizing our speech activities, I think that's wrong too. Because people who say that believe that somehow if we get rid of all of the structures of constraint, 
that we now see to be faulty in a variety of ways. The result will be some utopian emergence of the truth, which will then be consumed by persons uh, whose eyes have now been mysteriously cleared. So I think that that utopian notion that if we get rid of these finally not philosophically defensible positions that will somehow move into a new era of Edenic perfect communication, I can only laugh at that. The interesting thing is, of course, I understand why one would want to have this hope. And you're saying you could laugh at it because probably in many cases this has been proven wrong. The great fear, I think, of people who say this is too purist and abstract a principle, that it will either just enforce the status quo or actually lead to terrible results. This kind of idea that the First Amendment becomes a suicide pact will undoes right, its own right. conditions. Yeah, because that has to do, in, to some extent, with the structure of liberal political thought. Liberal political thought, as you know, substitutes for the old values, value rather, of obedience to an assumed authority, the freedom of the individual in combination with like individuals to explore uh, the alternatives and to fashion authorities in the course of the kind of deliberative conversation that we see uh, as the heart of liberalism. Now, once you put it that way, that liberalism is a way of processing achieving through procedure the kind of certainty and authority that was once given, let's say, in a monarchy or in a theocracy, you come very quickly to what has been called the liberal paradox. And that is simply put, if it's the case that liberalism teaches us that we must be always open to the possibility uh, that ideas that we now credit may be wrong all that ideas that we now do not take seriously may end up being right, then we are committed to giving ideas whose object is to undo the liberal conversation a hearing. That is, is liberalism committed to allowing the full, how shall I put it, the full enfranchising of views which, if successful, will undo it. Now, Wendell Holmes, in one statement, said, yes, that's right. He says, as I'm sure you recall, right. that if the ideas of dictatorship are to prevail, then the First Amendment means that they must have their chance to have their way. Right. And then on the other side, people invoke the suicide pact metaphor, which you mentioned uh, a moment ago. No, we must, at a certain point, step in if we're going to save the very liberal conversation to which we were all committed. And it's interesting on the two sides of this is the presumption of liberalism, you tolerate all ideas, including those that will destroy liberalism. There's the great American tradition of having the fear and the anxiety on the side of communism to regulate speech around that because it could bring down our democracy. And the other side is fascism or totalitarianism. So you have these points and that speech is the one that becomes then complicated because you're saying if you're truly liberal, do you tolerate that which is truly anti-liberal or illiberal in a way to the point that it could actually undo your whole project? Right. But you might have, as Holmes, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes seemed to have, 
in some of his moods, you might have a, an optimism or faith yes. that if you allow all speech, including speech which is at least potentially destructive of the liberal order, if you allow everything into the mix, into what has been called the marketplace of ideas, in time, the good ideas will rise to the top and the bad ideas will have been rejected. Or, or as Brandeis put it, sunshine is the best uh, disinfectant. Now, if you have that optimistic view of things that you think in the long run time will bring us to the point where the arc of justice is realized, then I guess you don't worry as much as some people do uh, about forms of speech that are thought destructive to the entire enterprise. Well, it's interesting you bring up the kind of the famous quote by Dr. Martin Luther King, the arc of history is bent toward justice, this presumption right. that ultimately the good ideas. And James Madison in Federalist Papers says, the great thing about America is the, the pluralism of our country allows for so many ideas. And then on balance, there will be more good people than bad people, more good ideas than bad ideas. So we should let all of them flourish and it'll work itself out. That's the yes. great American experiment. Why do you think people don't just sort of believe that and just start to distrust it? And why are these controversies erupting on campuses and all over America? And people are saying, I'm a skeptical. I'm skeptical this is really going to work out, that the arc of history is really bent in this one direction. Well, I point, I return back to the emergence of the internet yeah. that touched on earlier in our conversation, because it doesn't seem that there's any way to believe that the bad ideas or the noxious views or the actually violence-producing views that abound on the internet are going to be discarded um, or simply because they've been allowed to flourish in the light of day. Quite the reverse. It seems that no matter how absurd or potentially dangerous an idea is, putting it on the internet doesn't expose it to cool judgment. What it does is produce the number of people who perhaps become adherents to it. So that might be part of the reason why people lose their faith in this process that we usually call the marketplace of ideas. And you've had this argument, you know, very pervasive that, you know, bad speech is best countered, not by censorship, right, right. but That's more speech. Right, that's another Brandeis, uh, yeah. And there's more speech, but when you're saying the internet is complicated because it maximizes the capacity to just amplify, and it's not totally clear that more speech and counter speech, because some people also are studying whether, for example, as you say, noxious language, falsehoods, actually stay with people longer than the retraction, the correction, the counter-speech that you put... Absolutely. And some of the, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg and others uh, in the internet, in the techno world, have begun to realize that their early democratizing hopes for the internet may have been naive or at least over-optimistic. Um, they are realizing as one internet guru puts it that there are a lot more bad people out there in the world than we had anticipated right and so that the old formula the more information the more knowledge there is out there the better things will be and the better people will, and the better we will be as people for it i don't think that that's that can hold up in the face of what the internet has produced so there was a volume 
I think five years ago, the University of Chicago published University of Chicago Press called the Offensive Internet, <laughs> which had the people who were contributing to it were stalwart liberals, the John Stewart Mill, John Rawls kind, people like Martha Nussbaum and Brian Leiter and Jeffrey Stone and others. But they were all combining to say that something has gone very wrong in this new internet world and they were warning against it. Interesting. There was an article by Bill Joy in Wired, I think 10 years ago, who also said, we'll have great things through technology, all sorts of cures for disease, all sorts of, you know, simplifying labor and activities and information. And then there'll be devastating things that we can't even imagine yet. So if, you know, Martha Nussbaum, Bill Light or Jeffrey Stone, who is who would even arbitrate any of this or draw a line and say, this is the bad part, this is the good part? This is the question that comes up over and over if we are realizing there may be a problem here, but isn't the default simpler to say, well, let all speech, let it sort itself out? Yeah. Well, again, that's the opposition. Let the marketplace sort it out. Follow the optimistic view of Brandeis. Also, the earlier, the optimistic view of an early free speech theorist like the poet John Milton, and hope that, as Milton put it, that truth will always triumph in a free and open encounter. That was his quotation. Now, as I've often said, and now said for too many years, the only evidence against that view is all of recorded history, because it's simply not the case that ideas that are dangerous when put into the public air wither away. In fact, they flourish. You're raising a really critical point, so I'm saying in some ways when you're saying all of recorded history's evidence against that. Let's go to the place of the university where people say, well, this is one place where people could actually test these ideas and be in a guided setting and understand these ideas are bad, let's not follow them. And somehow universities become one of those sort of flare-up zones where these issues are worked out and then there's the people making the exact same argument which we were talking about, say, let's put more ideas into the university so people can see how noxious and wrong they are or dangerous. Versus the people who are saying, well, if you introduce them there in the first place, you've already given them legitimacy and you're doing exactly what you want to avoid. Well, here I would invoke a distinction. I know you've heard me make this argument before. For between freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry, mm -hmm. I maintain that they are not the same thing and are in some ways opposed. Freedom of speech is that democratic ideal which assumes that each individual has a right to the microphone or the megaphone, no voice should be dismissed in advance or authorized in a final or ultimate way in advance. And that's the democratic idea. The idea is to keep the conversation going, to have as many voices as possible contribute to that conversation. But academic life, as you and I certainly both know, is nothing like that. In fact, what happens in the academy is that through a series of mechanisms like department votes, hiring committees, deans, chancellors, university presses, learned journals, many more voices are excluded from the conversation than are let in. And the process is really more Darwinian than democratic. And so that the voices that are allowed to speak either in the classroom or in learned publications are voices that have been vetted and voted on and have passed through 
a series of disciplinary tests. So it's quite, quite different from the uh, democratic notion of freedom of speech. And so if the university is aware, as some universities are and some are not, that it's freedom of inquiry, not freedom of speech, that is at the core of the enterprise, those universities will not be so upset when free speech issues arise because they will be able to say what I say, which is that free speech is not an academic value. Freedom of inquiry is an academic value. Within the academy, you want to have relevant speech, correct speech, speech that follows the rules of discourse and of intellectual discovery. That's the kind of speech that is valued in the academy, not free speech. So why do you think people get this so wrong when they talk about oh, the university, both inside the and outside of the university? When you read about these college controversies, it's not really that people make these distinctions or even approach it in that way. They say, no, the opposite is true. There should be so much more freedom of speech in the university than even on the Hyde Park corner. Well, that's because they somehow, and I must include university administrators, and I know that you're one, and I have in the past been one. You've been uh, one too, so exactly. So, <laughs> so hmm? You have been one as well, exactly. So we, we can yeah. be included. Yes, yeah. sir. But by and large, administrators fail to understand the nature of the enterprise they are administering. I know that is an extraordinary thing to say, but I don't think you're going to disagree with me, are you? No, I, uh, I, but tell me a little bit more. What I, I think you're right and you're onto something, but why is that? It's odd that people who work in universities and actually shape them and try to make them better don't quite seem to get what they are about. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my instinct, which is just, uh, <laughs> I, I won't comment on what it is. My instinct is to say that the trouble with administrators is that they have, not enough of them have sat in my classes. Oh, okay, uh, good. Well, so we're, so we're helping them with this podcast at least a little bit. <laughs> if they, if, you know, not, not enough of them have said, okay, what is it that we do here? What is it that we do? What's our task? What task has history and society assigned to us? And once you've identified what the task is, you can then begin to ask about what one's responsibilities and obligations to that task are. And you can also begin to ask what activities are to go on within this enterprise and what activities, however worthy they may be, belong in some other enterprise. Now, if you were to, if administrators were to ask those questions, and come up with what I think to be the correct and even obvious answers, then many of these controversies would not puzzle them okay. uh, as they now do. They would be able to say, well, yes, for example, let's take a, an exaggerated example. If a student asks a question in a class and the instructor says, well, that might be a question, uh, an interesting question in, 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 in some forums, but not in this one, this is not what we're doing here this semester. No free speech violation has occurred. The students' free speech rights have not been abrogated because in the classroom, the student doesn't have free speech rights. In fact, nor does the instructor. What goes on in the classroom is scripted by the mission uh, or purpose or point of the educational enterprise. And if that were clearly understood by administrators, 
they would be able to recognize some free speech controversies as being the illegitimate imports into the educational context of values that belong in other contexts. For example, political values. There's nothing wrong with debating politics directly, and there's nothing wrong with having discussions, the point of which is to send all of the people in the room out into the streets, either to march or to organize. These are very, very valuable activities. They are just not activities that belong in the university. So, for example, when students ask universities to divest from fossil fuel stocks, that is to not allow their endowments to be in any way associated with fossil fuel stocks, they're asking the university to take a political position um, as opposed to a position, fiduciary position. And that's just a wrong thing to do so you, if you understand what universities are for. But if it's interesting, and you're saying students and administrators and, and teachers are not, they're conflating a set of values that maybe they hold right. dear and they're very important to them. And they say, my value is you know, all sorts of progressive politics. So I should actually impart those and, you know, advocate for those. And is it possible to do a kind of the Kantian distinction and say, I'm just going to be disinterested, teach my subject and not take these kinds of positions? Do you think that's... I'm a... not, I would resist slightly the word disinterested mm -hmm. because I think that being passionately devoted to your subject is the sign of a successful and well-developed professional academic, if, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. And it's not disinterested, it's being passionately interested in this. Yeah. That is what, it is, what is it that we're here to do, as opposed to what we might be doing after school. People who want to have all of their interests at play in any particular context in which they happen to be engaged are very much like the owner of the Red Hen restaurant in Lexington, Virginia, who decided that her own political views and also the views that would seem of her staff should dictate how she operated as the owner of a restaurant licensed in a small town in Virginia. That seems to me to be an absolutely clear instance of someone who wasn't able to separate her political commitments from the responsibilities that she took on when she opened up a place of business. So she was just making a category mistake, which I think will have very bad consequences for her, when she asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave her restaurant because she disapproved of both her political views and the political views of the administration uh, for which she worked. Well, college and universities are often, in the persons of their administrators, are often making that same kind of mistake. And students today are often asking college and university administrators to make that mistake. Can students, they want the university and the college to be on the right side politically as opposed to be on the responsible side educationally. Can I put a point on this in some ways? I don't know if this is a useful question or hypothetical. So if a customer in a restaurant said, I'll be happy to eat here, but I will not 
I refuse to be waited on by this particular person because I don't like people like this because of group belonging. So I don't want a woman to wait on me or a Muslim or, you know, a gay person or an African-American, whatever category that is protected. And if the same thing happens in the university and I say, I want to give a lecture at your school at Cardozo or somewhere, but I would rather not have these types of people in the lecture hall. Is that a conflict with a value that's inappropriate in the, in the university or the restaurant, or do the owners or administrators of the university or restaurant then have a right to say, you are not welcome here because we have a right to run the business according to those values which are closer to a political right or legal right? Well, look, in the both the context that you're referring to, the restaurant context or the university context, what the person making the decision should adhere to is a sense of what the enterprise is. We're here, the restaurant, we're here to serve the public, and our service to the public includes, then you could list uh, for a restaurant, we're going to purchase good quality produce and meats, we're going to have a kitchen which is clean and operated hygienically, we're going to charge uh, fair prices and so forth. Those are our obligations, but it is not part of our obligation to adjust our activities to your political preferences, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the preferences that you have as a customer in a restaurant. And the same thing would hold in a university setting. That is, if there's a university event and the person who is giving a talk says, I don't want these kind of people to come into the hall to listen to me. The answer to that is that we are, we, the administrators, are the proprietors of an enterprise which has no interest in such distinctions. Uh, Such distinctions might in fact have a place elsewhere, but not here. Right. It's not hard. I mean, I don't think it's Once (laughs) you get the idea of focusing on the nature of the enterprise. What is it that the enterprise is supposed to be doing? What are its special, what special skills or goods does it offer to society? And once you understand that, all these other questions will fall into place. And that's why I said earlier that a lot of administrators who've never thought through the basic questions of the entity they're administrating, find themselves at sea, find themselves being puzzled and discombobulated by appeals to values that belong elsewhere. What's interesting, I think what's happened a bit, which is unfortunate, that the First Amendment is invoked as the kind of answer or response to these moments of befuddlement. And I think on both sides, people have felt this is not the right answer. So when there's been college controversies, a let's say, you know, a, a sort of a you know, neo-Nazi is confirmed to speak at a public university, which has happened, and then the administration doesn't quite know how to get through it and says, well, First Amendment. And then the students say, what are you explaining, actually? What are you referring to? What value is being upheld here? And then I think there's a suspicion on some site that it's not a value being upheld, it's just a principle invoked as if that has solved everything. That's right. I think that university administrators often will say First Amendment when they're simply unable to think through 
the uh, complexities uh, of what what faces them. And since, as I've already said, the First Amendment is not the value that should rule the university, invoking the First Amendment as an answer to almost any controversial response seems to me to be very odd. If you have a situation in an enterprise, and in order to think about the enterprise, you invoke a set of values which belongs to some other enterprise. It just doesn't make any sense to me, although, as you've already indicated, that's exactly what a lot of administrators do. Can you say something uh, sort of in closing about why is this intense scrutiny of what the university is doing through, through this narrow lens, which we lived through in the 90s when we had sort of all the debates about obscenity and sort of Maplethorpe, you know, artists like Karen Finley, there's yeah, yeah. all of this. Is, is it a return or is it, is there something else going on? And our university, I mean, they should all take your class clearly to understand what their own values are. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel they're a bit caught in a culture war and not quite sure what direction to go or whether to take a position. Well, I think the situation in which we now find ourselves in in, in colleges and universities goes further back further than the 90s to the 1960s. Politicization of the academic scene. That, I think, is the constant uh, from the student protests in the 60s to the student protests today. It's the idea that the university should be enlisted, should enlist itself in the army of virtue. And that's a very powerful notion, extraordinarily powerful notion, so that the entire enterprise of deliberative inquiry, of the contemplation of ideas in order to understand their structure rather than in order to fashion a policy which you then enact, this is all going to seem extraordinarily unsatisfying to people who immediately want all the institutions with which they're associated to be united in a political program in some effort to achieve social justice. I think that that's a very powerful idea. I think it's a wrong idea because it simply, again, misunderstands the entire purpose of the university, but I'm not sure how finally to combat it. I've said this many times, back in 2003, when the debate was whether or not to invade Iraq, the University of Wisconsin's provost encountered a bunch of students who were demanding that the University of Wisconsin take a stand against the then impending invasion of Iraq. And the provost of the University of Wisconsin said this, he said, The University of Wisconsin does not have a foreign policy. And I thought that was a totally brilliant remark. Because the University of Wisconsin or any other university also doesn't have an agrarian policy or an economic policy, or in fact doesn't have any policy. Right, right. Except an educational policy, which is itself substantive and often very complicated. What I so much liked about his statement is that it was very simple. He says, so look, we're a university. That's not what we do, take political positions. And Now, a lot of people in response to that will say, oh, that's just an ivory tower position. 
to which I would say, right, it is, and the ivory tower position is the one that we should all hold to and maintain. Because I think you're saying not because the critique is wrong that spaces are politicized even against their own will, but people should actually hold onto or resist this politicization from external forces and then make the error to be able to respond in kind. Do You're saying people should hold on and defend what the university is rather than just be buffeted between, let's say, student protests, which always happen, and right now we have the Justice Department filing amicus briefs and lawsuits, you know, about sort of speech regulation. So you have different forces outside of the university and alumni and trustees, all these forces. And you're saying hold on to your values and make them clear, not pretend they these forces don't exist. This is not, I think, a, how shall I put it, a winning proposition these days. Because yeah. not only do you have the inclination, as I said earlier, uh, to have your academic institution reflect uh, the particular set of values, political and moral, that you believe in, but you also have the phenomenon of regarding education as a consumer enterprise in which the entire point is to prepare students for gainful employment and in which the student himself or herself is considered a customer who therefore should have some kind of role in determining the structure university life and that's a very powerful ethic these days i think again totally wrong uh, one that that should be rejected but there it is let me put it this way the old idea of a college or a university as a place where deliberation occurs and where no one expects or wants that deliberation to issue in political action is very much under siege and as far as I can tell, has few defenders. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, I, am, I agree with you. I think it's very difficult. I think people are feeling compromised in these ways. You have a book coming out called The First, right? Uh, yeah. Where you're dealing with these issues in all sorts of walks of life, not just the university. That's right. And you're taking up some of the really, the issues that are kind of roiling our nation right now. And so I want to thank you, Stanley, for joining us. I do want to refer people back to, you know, you have written, I, as I said, I think at last count, about 18 books That's right. on the politics of speech, the politics of the university, and of a lot of other areas also. I also like and love your book, How to Write a Sentence and How to Read One. <laughs> so, yes. so this is my little shout out to your you know, published work. And, and I really look forward to reading the first, which is probably coming out hopefully later, even in 2018. We're lucky. I think it will. I think it probably will. That's yes. great. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining the podcast, and uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with Professor Stanley Fish. Okay, thank, thank you. you.